Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining today's call. These have been very efficient meetings and great ways to get caught up on the myriad issues that people are facing today. And I thank the Development Office for inviting me to introduce today's program. Just so everyone knows, today's call will be on the record up to the portion where we take questions from the audience. We would also like to make special note of some of the people who are joining us on the call today. We have Vice Chair of our board, Drew Maloney, board member Thelma Duggan, former board member, Ambassador Chuck Kahn, co-chair of the Global Advisory Council, Sir John Scarlett, and Global Advisory Council members, Mohammed Alardi and Ken Slater, international co-chair of our cabinet, Don McClellan, chair of the Wilson Council, Diana Negroponte, and close friends of the Wilson Center, Marlene Malik, Grace Bender, and Tom Mansbach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our topic today is talking about Congress with two former members of Congress know the place intimately and know how much of a human institution this is and how this situation is really affecting how members of Congress are able to do their jobs. Congress is facing many issues. Not only is there the normal practice of legislation and appropriations and oversight and conducting their usual legislative business, but now they have a pandemic to boot. In this crisis, they've had to try to figure out how to work from home, have their staffs work from home, how to conduct oversight, also be visible when there is a president who is able to be visible all the time. There are also multi-trillion dollar emergency funding measures, which place our deficit situation in the best case scenario at $3 trillion deficit this year. And they haven't even been able to start the normal appropriations process. So today we have former Congressman Charlie Dent from Pennsylvania, who served as a Republican from Pennsylvania from 2005 to 2018. And of course, our CEO that you know well, Congresswoman Jane Harmon, who served as a Democrat from California and before she came to join us at the Wilson Center. So I'm gonna turn it over to Congressman Dent, who will get us started. And we really appreciate everyone who's been able to join the call today. Sure, well, well thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction. And let me just first say it's a pleasure to be here with everybody at the Wilson Center. Uh, Jane Harmon has been a very good friend and a mentor to me while I was in Congress. Uh, so whatever I get wrong, she'll clean up here. But let me just say a few things first about uh, where, where I see Congress. You know, having left Congress just prior to the Democrats uh, retaking the House, uh, my observation had been that there were too many members in the House of Representatives especially who were very good at telling you all the things that they could never do. That is, they could never get, too many could not get the yes. They saw no political reward uh, in seeking consensus or compromise. Their political safety was tacking hard to the base. That was particularly true on the Republican side, uh, although I suspect now that the Democrats have the majority, they're starting to feel more of that pressure from some of their fringe elements, uh, you know, who are trying to pull the party, you know, uh, further hard, hard left. Uh, and, and so Democrats are starting to feel that same pressure. Uh, but this is something I had noticed uh, as a member of the Appropriations Committee. Uh, and also, I would sit in weekly meetings with then Speaker Ryan. And I would sit in meetings with Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan and about eight of us every week to talk about policy and tactics and strategy. And I would get ex exceedingly frustrated when, you know, I would have to deal with, say, members of that Freedom Caucus and others, you know, who would you know, recommend uh, ways to proceed 
that I knew were absolutely uh, non-starters, you know, almost pretending as if the United States Senate did not exist. And they would always want to recommend some kind of an extreme position. And I would always say, well, of course, well, we're going to pass a bill to the Senate. The Senate will negotiate something with them that's going to look like this. And I would always ask those guys, will you support the final product? And the answer, of course, was no. And that, that's what, and the leadership always knew this, but they always felt the need to indulge these members. And I always questioned them why. And it was obvious to me the reason why they would indulge them for these ideas that made very little sense. I think they did it because they needed to maintain their votes for leadership. And there weren't enough of us who, who were more pragmatic or more centered, uh, you know, to, you know to, to, to protect them in the event they were going to experience a rear guard action. Uh, so that was a, my main observation in Congress uh, in recent years, uh, and it made passing appropriations bills exceedingly difficult when you had a group of 40 people, roughly 40 people, who were always prepared, you know, to take a hostage. And frankly, um, and these folks, they not only take the hostage, but they were always prepared to shoot the hostage. And uh, and and I think the leadership understood that, so they would use their power, their their power of 40, to basically obstruct operations. Uh, making it very difficult to bring bills uh, to the floor. Now, you fast forward to where we are today, um, you know, we have a crisis on our hands, the COVID crisis, and there's nothing like a crisis to force people to cooperate. And for the most part, they have, you know, in terms of passing three or four major pieces of legislation by voice or with a you know, very limited opposition. So that's happening. But this, this goodwill is not going to last that much longer, uh, as we know. Uh, and uh, uh, the final thing I'll say, and I'll turn to Jane, uh, that the Democrats, I think, are feeling real pressure from their left flank. Um, you know, I'll, I don't want to just put it all on the squad, but but kind of represented by that wing and maybe the Bernie Sanders wing uh, of, of the party. Uh, that is, I think, putting pressure on some of the more moderate Democrats to take positions now in primaries that they ordinarily wouldn't take uh, because they feel that kind of pressure from their flank. So I think the Democrats are kind of moving in the same direction, but moving there a, a little more slowly. And so far, I think the Democratic House leadership has been able to, you know, you know, tamp that tamp those uh, folks down a bit. Uh, but I'm not convinced they're going to be able to do that for too much longer. So with that, I'll stop. Uh, Charlie, hey, hello, everybody. You there? Yes. yes. I'm here. Okay. Um, you can see why I like Charlie Dent. Uh, let me make a few points, and maybe we can mix it up a little here. Um, first of all, uh, Charlie and I both left the institution voluntarily. Uh, you should know that. I left for a better job, that is, to succeed Lee Hamilton as head of the Wilson Center, and he left for a series of better jobs, including talking head on a major uh, um, television network and a variety of other things and maybe more to come. So uh, we left. Um, that Usually people who are centrist, which we both are, are, are target practice and don't leave or often don't leave voluntarily. Second of all, uh, Charlie arrived in 2004. We served on the Homeland Security Committee together. Uh, he was on an appropriations and he ended up yeah, on an appropriations subcommittee and also I think you chaired the ethics committee if I'm not wrong. Yeah, I chaired ethics and I chaired an appropriations subcommittee. Well, he, so that makes him a cardinal god yeah. his, in yeah. his red robes, the whole thing. Uh, I, I, I was just a lowly member. Well, no, not so lowly. I was on all the security committees and I was ranking member on Intel uh, for four years. And then I chaired, I chaired a subcommittee of Homeland Security 
uh, for four years uh, on the Subcommittee on Intelligence, and my ranking member was Mike McCall, who went on to become chairman of the whole Homeland Committee uh, after after I left. But my point is, we both left voluntarily. We were both centrists and, uh, uh, drum roll, good friends from, from day one, even when we disagreed. And uh, an example is, I was uh, my staff looked this up, we went on a CODEL, that's a congressional delegation for those from other parts, uh, which sadly don't happen at all now in the COVID world, but uh, were and could be, again, bipartisan trips to hotspots in the world to learn something as an oversight function. But we were on a CODEL at Guantanamo Bay back in the day, uh, Guantanamo Bay Prison, and I came back and I said, I wrote an op-ed and I said, uh, uh, the prison should be closed and the prisoners should be moved to uh, supermax prisons in the United States. And Charlie wrote, um, uh, ten minutes later, his op-ed, which said, I have a great deal of respect for Harmon, who has become one of only a few members of Congress who are subject matter experts on intelligence. I had to read that to you. However, I draw a very different conclusion about whether Gitmo should be closed. And he makes a very cogent article, with which I disagree, but an uh, argument with which I disagree, But my and it's still open, so I guess he persuaded folks. But my point is, we could disagree, and we still po- possibly can disagree, although I don't know what we would disagree about the, in these days. But we did it civilly, and we brought information to the floor, and we put it out there and let people draw their conclusions. That is how Congress used to work. So let me make three points about Congress. I've, I've said enough about Charlie, whom I love. Uh, one, my theory of the case, and many of you have heard me, is that Cong- the, the business model of Congress is broken, not all the people in it. The business model now is blame the other side for not solving the problem. Both sides do this. Because if you work with the other side, you are bipartisan. And the political reward for being bipartisan is to cause you to lose in your primary. So uh, most people at their peril are bipartisan. I think an exception, as Charlie points out, is the COVID legislation, because people in every district have COVID. Um, Secondly, uh, sadly, uh, the old way that Congress worked through the committee structure is also basically dead. Uh, It's called the regular order. What used to happen was smart people uh, about subject X would get on that committee, and maybe that committee did things that related to your constituents. I sought out membership on the House Armed Services Committee uh, and Intel. I didn't get Intel right away, but Armed Services, because my district in Southern California made most of our intelligence satellites, and they're funded through the defense budget. So, therefore... I really wanted to be on that committee and pay attention to my constituents, which is what I did. The people on armed services knew, I'd say, by and large, uh, this applies to people on transportation or pick pick another committee, uh, a little more than, than other people about defense because that's what we worked on. And it used to be true that the committees would um, shepherd legislation having to do with their jurisdiction, uh, have oversight hearings, markups, and the subcommittee and then the full committee would report, that's the language, the bill to the floor. And people not on the committee would give at least some, not uh, total, but some respect to the committee members who might know a little more than they did, especially if the bill was reported on a bipartisan basis. That was the regular order. And it was a good thing, I think. And uh, people became specialists. Uh, Now, committees have almost no power. 
And what's voted on on the floor, I will say this, in many cases is a press release designed by leadership, one side or the other, to make the other side look bad. Remember I said the business model is blame the other side for not solving the problem. That's not always true, but sadly the regular order is uh, in sharp decline and, and, and maybe on, on a, uh, uh, a respirator. Um, and, and finally, um, let me say on the COVID issue that uh, there is something that unites all members. Um, their constituents are getting sick. And, Charlie, I hope you will uh, tell us something about this. I know you had COVID. You had a right. mild case of COVID. We're all relieved to hear that. But you had it. So right. you've been through this. You've seen this movie yourself. And, and I think that this was uh, a, a rare high moment that Congress came together and unanimously passed some bills. We could argue whether they're, they bust the deficit, whether they should have more strings attached to how this money is going out. Uh, we've, we've, I think we're all seeing that, um, oops, there are you know, some, some uh, boo-boos out there in terms of who gets the money and, and, and whether they'll uh, – uh, and, 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 and the circumstances under which they got the money. But certainly the intentions of most people in Congress were very good. And now comes another giant COVID bill. Uh, which will be on the House floor uh, Friday, authored by Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Caucus. And it will be interesting to see what happens to it. I, my own prediction at the moment is it will get uh, be pretty perceived as pretty partisan and not go anywhere, but it will at least, for those folks who are for it and those folks who are against it, give them you know something to talk about. Uh, I think I'll stop there. Yeah, this is Don Wolfensberger, and I've been... Uh brought in to ask some questions of both of you. Uh, and Jane's uh, last point uh, really leads to my first question. Whereas the previous, uh, I think, four bills in response to the crisis were negotiated uh, four ways between the House and Senate Democrats and Republicans and the administration, uh, this bill that's coming up Friday has been basically negotiated between Speaker Pelosi and, uh, and Chuck Schumer, the uh, Democratic leader in the Senate. And I'm just wondering, uh, because of that, if, if this is – well, I should point out, too, that both Mitch McConnell in the Senate, the Republican leader, and the administration is urging instead for a four- to six-week pause to see how the first uh, bunch of money is being spent, if it's being well spent, and what tweaks need to be made. But I'm just wondering if this approach now is a realistic opening salvo uh, for the, the Democrats in an ongoing, what will hopefully become an ongoing negotiation process, or is it, as Jane suggested, maybe uh, just being done for for political posturing or messaging purposes? And uh, you know, what Political had an, an excellent quote today that wasn't attributed to any Republican, but it said this legislation is a messaging bill that will never become a law, a way for the party to make the point that, in their view. They're working on the coronavirus relief, and Senate Republicans are not. But let's start with uh, Congressman Dent, your reaction, and then Jane. Sure. My, my, my quick reaction is the Democrats are simply – the House Democrats are simply laying down a marker. Uh, this bill absolutely has no chance of becoming law. I think everybody understands that. Uh, I, would, I would also – and I'm going to say this as a former House member – that the only bills that become law in Washington – are those that can get through the Senate with 60 votes. And so at the end of the day, and I, and I, again, I don't like saying this because it hurts me as a House member, but the Senate is where that compromise will be reached. It's going to be reached between McConnell and Schumer, and, of course, Mnuchin will be involved. 
House Democrats will have input. But whatever can pass the U.S. Senate is what is going to get to the president's desk. Now, if you just flip the scenario back, you know, when, when Republicans had the House and the Democrats had the Senate and President Obama was in the White House in the early after the Tea Party uh, rebellion there in 2010. So those those first couple terms, House Republicans would routinely pass bills that had absolutely no chance of becoming law. Uh, I can recall the cap cut and balance bill that you know had no chance having to deal with deficits. And then we finally came up with a big budget agreement. But the point I'm making is there's always going to be a, a compromise and it's got to happen in the Senate because neither party can steamroll the other there. Uh, so Pelosi's laid down a marker. I think what she's really after in this bill is funding for state and local governments, which is probably about a third of the three trillion dollars. I think it's about nine hundred billion out of the three trillion. So that's what I see happening. Uh, laying down the marker, no chance of becoming law. But part of that bill will become law uh, when they finally get serious about the negotiation. Jane, uh, I would say uh, something. I agree, but I'd add a couple things. It is a messaging bill. There's no question about that. But as Charlie said, some of the messages are really good. Uh, states and, and localities are starved uh, in their response to this crisis. And there has been less than at least I would have recommended in terms of national response and coordination. Uh, I think if we'd started that earlier, um, you know, driving more tests to the right places, driving contact tracing, organizing the country – uh, the way uh, FDR organized the country uh, to build the 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 uh, materiel necessary to fight World War II. I mean, this is a war. I, the president's not wrong about that. I think we'd be a lot farther ahead. At any rate, um, we're not, and and the states and cities have been uh, truly hurting. And I think it is right that they need uh, relief. And that's about a third of the bill. The problem there is going to be that the biggest states have Democratic governors. Uh, and I think this president is going to be very reluctant, especially if these funds are distributed proportionally, to give money to the biggest states because of that. I'm thinking California and New York. Um, Massachusetts, other states have Republican governors. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania, I think. No, Pennsylvania, um, Pennsylvania is Democrat, but states like Florida and Texas, Republican governors, I'm sure they have huge deficits, too. Well, I'm sure they do. But I'm saying if the money goes out proportionately – uh, then um, uh, New York and California get more because they have more people. And, and I'm not sure this president will agree to that. But, but that's a third of the bill. The other two-thirds, I think, are topics that uh, we could argue they're important or they're not important, but I want to go to a, another place with this. Um, uh, uh, Charlie's right that the Senate will have to negotiate something, but Pelosi – who, in my view, has been uh, outstanding in this turn as speaker, was a, the key negotiator of the last bill. Uh, and she is the House speaker, not the, not the Senate leader. Uh, she's the one who negotiated the last you know, inches with uh, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin. So just saying, I do think you're, you're undervaluing our former employer. But at any rate, here's where I want to go. Deficits. Does anybody care anymore? Uh, answer seems to be no. And as one who uh, spent time in the 90s, my first decade in Congress, uh, seriously trying to work with uh, the other party to balance the budget and then actually voted for a balanced budget in 1998, which passed by huge bipartisan margins in both houses, uh, this is heartbreaking. 
and I hope um, uh, either Don, you're going to follow up, or somebody on the call is going to follow up with some comments on on how how much at risk we are. With three trillion is just from from the bills we've passed. Um, maybe we'll pass this next one for one to three trillion, and then we already had a deficit. So this is to me a huge. Uh, security risk, and I do think it is worth pausing a bit to think about uh, how we're going to print all this money. Yeah, you you remind me, Jane, of the the uh, former senator from my home state of Illinois, F. Dirksen, who was quoted quite frequently by saying, you know, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. Now I guess it's a trillion here and a trillion there. But the to follow up on the uh, the aid for the states and counties and municipalities. I'm just wondering uh, what kind of strings or conditions should be attached to that because there's some worry that maybe this money will be funneled into propping up uh, you know, uh, government workers' pension plans that might be underwater and so on. And secondly, what kind of oversight is Congress able to do while it's really out of session for the most part? I mean, I know we're going to have some uh, you know, uh, teleconferencing uh, hearings and, and markups and so on, but I'm just a little worried about whether Congress is going to be able to monitor how this money is being spent. Uh, what, are, what are your reactions to that? Uh, well, as a former state, I was a 14-year state legislator, eight years in the state house, six years in the state senate, for seven terms in Congress. By the way, that's 13 elections. I would like to say I'm 13 and 0, undefeated and unindicted. Uh, but now, having said that, now having said that, um, uh, the state there should be conditions. Uh, there is some concern that states will use this this what they'll consider a windfall of money, uh, not only to make up for lost revenue, which they should be able to use this money for. They're losing revenue hand over fist. Um, because they're dependent on income taxes, sales taxes, business taxes that are all very much uh, uh, subject to the strength of the economy. So when the economy dips, their revenue sources dip significantly. So they need lost revenue. They need money to uh, help fund their Medicaid programs because Medicaid is counter-cyclical, as you know. When the economy dips, of course, the need for Medicaid increases. And, of course, states, one of their their biggest line item in their budget is Medicaid, so they're tempted to chop Medicaid. So the states will legitimately need money for Medicaid. Uh, They're going to need money for, obviously, other COVID-related expenses. The fear is that um, states will use some of this money to pay for their legacy costs. Nobody wants to bail out Illinois. I'm picking on Illinois. Illinois' (laughs) long-term problems. Uh, We all know about them and their their unfunded liabilities. So that has to be firewalled off. If they can firewall that off, I think most of them would acknowledge that the states and local governments must be supported, you know, in this uh, moment of need. Okay, Jane, what about California? Are they going yeah, to, uh, well, I don't, I don't disagree with Charlie. Um, in fact, I agree with Charlie, but I'd add a surprise, surprise. But I'd add a, a, a couple more things. First of all, Charlie, you have to tell us about having COVID because no kidding, oh. this happened to you. Um, but. Um, and I agree about uh, keep confining this bill to relief uh, for the burden of, of, of facing the COVID crisis and not for um, uh, intentional or unintentional other uh, budget problems that states have. How do I feel about California? Well, you know, 40 million people live in California, and uh, that's more than live anywhere else. The largest congressional delegation is from California. It is bipartisan. I actually think the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is doing a good job on this thing, and he's being, you know, tough but but um, sensible. Um, 
uh, I would say. So uh, California acted uh, more promptly than some states, so uh, perhaps per capita the impact of this is a bit less. Uh, and I just think there ought to be fair accounting with careful oversight by Congress. I do think both houses of Congress ought to do oversight. Uh, it is not up to the White House to decide that the House doesn't get to do oversight. And I think uh, that's what should happen. I mean, I, I think California deserves a hunk of the money. Uh, and uh, I, I forgot, uh, Pennsylvania has a Democratic governor. I don't think COVID picks us by party. I think that this is... Uh, uh, a, 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 you know, uh, what, what is uh, the president saying? An invisible enemy. Uh, and that's what it is. And it's an enemy attacking all of us. So, Charlie, please tell us what it was like to get COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, look, fortunately for me, my, my symptoms were relatively mild. Unpleasant, uh, but mild. It started with a, a, mild, a very, uh, a very uh, light cough, you know, up in, I'll say, you know, above my shoulders. It wasn't in my chest. And it was it was a very mild cough, one that I would if I wouldn't even thought about it had I if I it didn't work for COVID. So that I had no fever, I had no respiratory issues. That's the good news. Uh, but the, I, I developed uh, back aches very quickly, um, which I thought were just back aches. You know, I've had a back ache in the past, but these persisted for a few days. I couldn't sleep for three nights. I had chills. I had sweats. I lost my sense of taste, uh, smell. I didn't really smell that much either appetite, didn't want to eat any, any meat or uh, vegetables, so I would just eat the bagels or English muffins with peanut butter on. Uh, and then, uh, but the most persistent uh, symptom was fatigue. I was very fatigued, and that's the only reason I was tested, because after the symptoms went away, I still felt very lethargic. And that's when I called the doctor, and the doctor recommended that I get tested. Uh, and, and then I was tested on March 31st. Four days later, they told me I tested positive, and then Right around Easter, I started feeling much better. The energy levels started coming back. And I, in fact, I donated my blood plasma last week. So I'm in great shape now. I'm fine. I'm walking and running two to four miles a day. So all's good. That had to be scary, though. Yeah, and again, it was unpleasant. Now, truthfully, I had bronchitis coming back from Africa about five years ago. Uh, and that knocked me on my back. That was a much worse experience, but it was more limited. That was about a week to 10 days. And I had, uh, I've had loose symptoms that were candidly more acute, um, but again, more more uh, confined and restricted in terms of time. This one, though, it was just the fatigue. That scared me. I thought maybe I had mono or something. That's why am I, why am I so, uh, why am I so tired? Why am I sleeping 10 hours? You know, I mean, it never happens. And so that was, uh, so that was it. So that was what scared me. Getting back to the, uh, the states that uh, you both have been mentioning, uh, I thought it was interesting that the polls, uh, several different polls, show that the governors have much higher approval ratings than some folks in Washington. And uh, I think it's because they have stepped in where, you know, they felt they had to and that maybe there was a, a gap there that, that Washington was not filling. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting uh, development because otherwise you don't hear much about governors uh, under the normal course of news. But uh, I think they have really stepped out and, and stepped up. Let me put on my hat from my former position as staff director of the House Rules Committee and and uh, bring you into a, a procedural discussion, not not in great depth, but uh, tomorrow the Rules Committee, the House Rules Committee, will be meeting not only on this uh, HEROES Act, it's another acronym that I won't go into now, but they will also be looking at a, a procedural change that has been pushed by Speaker Pelosi and uh, House Rules Committee Chairman Jim McGovern, and that is to allow for 
members to vote by proxy uh, for floor votes, give their proxies to members that, uh, with specific instructions then as each vote comes along, and then also to uh, allow committees to move forward with the teleconferencing type of uh, hearings and as well as business meetings. But I'm wondering if either of you have any qualms about uh, you know, going remotely as far as uh, uh, floor proceedings or, you know, any any ideas on how committees can function? Jane, you want to start? Uh, okay, I'll start. Qualms, yes. Do I think we may need to make an, a very careful exception for this? Yes. I think the alternative is the House can't do oversight and the House can't vote. I mean, it's been treasured for millennia that you have to stick. I guess before that it was probably roll call the way the Senate is. You would know, Don, but... Uh, you have to stick your your member card in a slot on the floor, and you register uh, yay, nay, or present if you don't have an opinion, or if it's a, uh, just an attendance vote, you 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 mark present, and uh, then you see your name on a uh, on a scoreboard on the wall, and you note how you voted, and you also have the opportunity if you have people whose votes you think are significant in terms of affecting your vote, you can wait until Charlie Dent votes and see what he did and say, ooh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, so uh, that's a good thing. I mean, and and the, what comes with that is the ability for leaders or committee chairs, when they had power or whatever, to uh, corral folks before they vote and say, you know, please support my amendment, please oppose this, and a lot of uh, member lobbying was done on the floor, and I, I found all of that useful. Um, in this circumstance, however, where any of that could, you know, give your COVID to me or my COVID to you, I think it's it's harmful. And I think if we want the Congress to function, and I think the Senate is going this direction, we've got to go virtual for a while. And and my view would be, I would support bipartisan legislation that for a limited limited amount of time with tight constraints uh gave the option to congress to, to go in this direction i don't i don't yeah. see a better alternative yeah they have a four, 45 day sunset that could be renewed by the speaker of the uh, uh, you know the pandemic is still on and so on one thing i should mention is there's also a provision in this resolution that uh, charges the uh, house administration committee with looking into developing uh more of a uh, teleconferencing type of situation for the house floor so you're not just casting your vote by proxy, but instead you have the opportunity to participate in the debate. And I think that's what they want to go for eventually is to allow more members to be part of the deliberations uh, prior to a vote. I have I agree with I agree with Jane that I agree with Jane that ordinarily I would be very much opposed to proxy voting because it empowers the committee chairs and the leaders too much. But under the circumstances they have to move to some kind of a virtual arrangement. Uh, there's no other way to conduct business. So as long as it sunsets, I think it's fine. And by the way, in my state, I, I talked to my state senator, who's chair of the Appropriations Committee in, in the, the state of Pennsylvania, uh, in Harrisburg. They're doing a lot of their voting right now remotely. So under the circumstances, yep. it's the best you can do. Once again, the states are taking the lead on some things, yeah. as is the parliament in the U.K., where you've seen uh, their question period and so on being done by like teleconferencing, which I thought was kind of interesting. I've just got one final question, and then we can turn it over to the uh, to the other folks on the line to uh, to, add, to or I, I guess they will be submitting their questions to Nora. But if you could make one specific recommendation to leaders of both parties about how to make Congress work better under this current uh, crisis, 
what would it be? Do you have any specific ideas as to how they might operate better that haven't been fully thought out yet or, or that they might want to consider? Uh, who, who, one recommendation from my side? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, uh, from your side or, or you know, to one one party or to both parties as to how they might uh, work better to get Congress to work uh, better under the difficult circumstances. I think the best thing I, for, is for leaders, uh, and yeah. this is probably more of a really, really more admonishing Republican leaders at this point than Democratic leaders, because I agree with Jane. I think that Pelosi has been a much more effective speaker second time out of the box than the first time. Um, and uh, I guess I would that, that that the leaders have to speak hard truths to their members. They're often afraid uh, to do that because they're afraid of these rear guard actions. And as a result of that, they tend uh, to do things that they know are really not in their interests uh, long term. That they will they will indulge members, um, you know, who really don't have the experience, knowledge, or the understanding of the institution that to govern. Uh, and and so. Uh, the bottom line is leaders have to tell the hard truths to the members so that so that the, uh, so that they can actually effectively govern and i think too often the leaders aren't prepared to say that to their members because they're they're afraid of them and a lot of the members are afraid of their constituents or fringe elements of their constituents and you know in these primary settings and that's the issue it's all about fear there're there just too many who are afraid they have to be a little bit more bold be willing to risk their jobs in order to keep them Okay, Jane. Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, my my uh, uh, addition to that last comment is that Congress is more of a re-election machine than almost anything else. Uh, but I would add a couple things. First of all, I think the president and the White House uh, have to tell hard truths to the country, and and uh, I think that's the lesson of of prior presidents. You really have to tell it uh, like it is. Then you have to. Uh, hopefully, with a very good team around you, uh, certainly in this case, a very good team of health officials, which I think this administration has, fashion a strategy, strategy, not just tactics, uh, to pull the country together. That's point one. Point two, I know that Marlene Malik is on this call. Uh, Marlene's husband, Fred, was the chairman of the Wilson Center for some years before he uh, sadly uh, died prematurely uh, a couple years ago, I guess last year. Um, but Fred uh, was a hard partisan. He was uh, he was probably the guy who helped more Republican governors get elected than anybody else ever. Certainly, including Mike Pence when he was governor, and, and lots of others. Um, uh, um, and he, uh, you know, spent a lot of his time doing that. On the other hand, Fred also supported a few Democrats, including Dianne Feinstein and me. And what Fred always said, and I heard him say this a lot as chairman of the Wilson Center, was uh, members that I've helped elect who don't put the country first ought to be criticized. And so that would be my suggestion. Why don't we just try this, have uh, leaders of Congress uh, talk about how to put the country first? And I would add finally that uh, governors get it. They put their states first. They don't just put... Uh, some of the population in their states first. I think the job of governor right at the moment is a better job than the job of a member of Congress because uh, they actually have a chance to solve problems. Uh, and and I say this with some sadness, um, but I, I'm betting Charlie agrees with me on that point too. Yeah, governors have to be uh, at times ruthlessly pragmatic. You know, they have to they have to actually get a result every year, and they've got to work with people they don't agree with and 
That's part of being an executive. Yeah, and they have to balance budgets, too, in most states. Right. Yeah, we have in this state uh, where I am. By the way, the president is coming into – I'm in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He'll be here tomorrow afternoon visiting an Owens and Minor distribution uh, facility. But, uh, but governors, you're right. In this state, you have to you not only have a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution, you know, the governor also has a line-item veto uh, that, that he can exercise or she. That's interesting. I – I guess I'm going to sign off my portion by just uh, recalling something that Woodrow Wilson wrote in his book, Congressional Government, back when he was a uh, graduate student at, uh, at, up at Johns Hopkins. And that is that uh, the job of Congress should, should be, uh, in part, an informing function, that members of Congress have a responsibility to tell you know, their constituents what the government is doing, what Congress is up to, so that they have a better idea of, of how things are functioning or how they might not be functioning. But I'm just wondering whether maybe members are a little timid now for, for fear of being challenged by somebody if they if they make a wrong move or, or say the wrong thing and trying to keep their constituents posted on, on what's going on. Yeah. Is it that many, kind of fear? Yeah, yeah. Many, I think, go into hiding. I mean, they... Um, you know, I think on the Republican side anyway, I thought that for many, um, they, they kind of they, they tend to lay low or they go to audiences that will, you know, affirm, you know, what they, they, they currently think. And so they might avoid, you know, town hall meetings, for example, or getting into you know, going outside of their comfort zone. And I think that's a that's that's not a small problem that, uh, like I said, um, many, many congressional leaders are afraid of their members. And many members of Congress are afraid, I'll say, of uh, you know, the, the, the hard elements of their party's bases. And this, this is the fear that has uh, made governance so damn difficult in recent years. Like I said, it's, it's affected Republicans and it's starting to affect Democrats now. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting development over the last 10, 15 years where you hear a, a new verb. Aren't you afraid of being primaried? You know, before it was, you know, who's going to be your challenger from the other party, but now more more often than not, there are a lot of primary challenges going on if if somebody is uh, too much to, to the left or too much to the right or, or whatever. But uh, it's it's kind of an interesting development, and I don't think it's all necessarily a good one. But you know, with that, uh, Jane, if you have any anything on this section that you want to sign off with, otherwise we'll turn things over to the, to the audience. Okay. 